navigate the journey to becoming a great lawyer with expert guidance on topics that range from trial skills to corner office management. Here you will learn how to tap into your potential for legal greatness. I'm Andrew Smiley, and this is The Mentor, ESQ. Uh, First of all, as always, I want to give my pitch for why you should join the Academy if you're not a member already. This is part five. If you joined me starting back in January of this year, back when it was cold in winter, uh, and you've gone all the way through that, now we're meeting at part five, and you're not a member yet, come on, join join the program. You'll get a discount. Michelle will make you a good deal, and you get all kinds of benefits, including online access to all the prior CLEs that have been recorded, including all of my CLEs that I've been doing for many, many years with the Academy. So if you missed any of uh, part one through now, uh, part one, two, three, or four of this series, you can catch up on the Academy's website if you're a member. You can also catch it on my podcast, uh, The Mentor ESQ, which is on all podcast platforms, or you can see it and listen to it and get the materials at thementoresq.com. So that would get you up to speed with where we are today. Uh, today's topic, part five, we got one more after this uh, next month, but we're almost there. And we have moved from the beginning of looking into this case. And now we're right up to the point where summary judgment motions have been decided, uh, likely in nobody's favor, and you're getting ready for trial. You've been given a trial date, or you have reason to believe the trial will be coming up maybe in the next few weeks, maybe in the next few months, and you need to gear up. You need to get ready. And that's what we're going to talk about today, gearing up for trial in a medical malpractice case. Uh, There are a lot of similarities uh, in gearing up for a trial in any case. And I would encourage you, uh, you saw my sponsor ad for the book that's on Amazon now. Uh, There's all kinds of information in there on how to prepare for trial. Uh, So I encourage you to take a look at that. Today, we're going to talk specifically about those unique factors when gearing up for a medical malpractice trial. I asked Michelle if she could throw up, if you do it now, Michelle, a brief just survey. I'm curious of the 440 some odd of us. um, Have you ever tried a medical malpractice case to verdict? Uh, I'd like to get a sense of the audience uh, and be honest. Uh, It's just, it's helpful to me in in the information that I'm going to relay to you about gearing up for trial. So once that's all done, just click yes or no. Then Michelle will uh, post the results and we can all see. We've got 70% of you have responded so far. We've got 300 of you. I'm going to wait until it hits 80%. So if you want your answer recorded, do it now. Let's go. Don't be shy. It's anonymous. Nobody's going to know. No one's going to know. Nobody knows. We don't see your name. We just see the data of it. All right. I'm going to end it, even though not everybody has responded yet, but whatever. Share the results. Here we go. Uh, No, almost 80-20, 79% no, 21% yes. Um, So, you know, we have almost 300 people who have not, about 80 who have, which is not surprising. Um, There are lots of reasons that people have not tried a medical malpractice case. I would guess that of those of you who have yet to try a medical malpractice case, it's probably because you were a little anxious about it. Maybe you didn't feel that you could do it. Maybe you've tried all kinds of other cases. 
So I'm here to encourage you, you can do it. You can absolutely try a medical malpractice case, especially if you've gotten up to this point um, in your litigation. And if you follow my suggestions uh, from part one and you screen the case properly, you worked it up properly, you have your experts on board, uh, you just did a fantastic deposition, multiple depositions in your case, uh, and got all the information you need, um, you're going to be ready because the trial itself is the culmination of all the behind the scenes work, preparation, preparation, preparation. Um, my father taught me when I was a young lawyer that you are always preparing for trial from the minute that case comes in. And for those of you who have tried cases and have tried medical malpractice cases or other cases, you start to realize that when a new case comes in and you start working on it, now you've seen the end. You've seen the end of the story in other cases and you see what happens and how it all plays out because you've tried cases to a verdict. So that's going to change a little bit when you take a case in and you're going to start thinking about how will this witness look on the stand? How will I get this evidence in? What am I going to show the jury to prove this point? I need to demand that in discovery. I need to get the answers to this in my deposition. So if you've done all of this that we've been talking about for the last four months or so, you will be ready. And it's really important that you go the distance, you give it a shot, because that's how you're going to feel comfortable. You'll be able to do it again. And then you can keep those cases. I know a lot of you uh, will work up a case until you get to a point and then you say, yeah, I'm not going to try this. I'm going to refer it out uh, to a firm like mine or other lawyers who will try other people's medical malpractice cases. Um, but I encourage you to consider keeping it because then I'm sure my uh, adversaries will agree, those on the defense side will get to know you as someone who tries your cases. They'll take you perhaps a little bit more seriously. They'll take your demands a little bit more seriously um, and not think that, oh, we'll wait and see who they get as trial counsel. So I encourage you to give it a shot um, and you can do it. And my goal is to help get you there. Uh, hopefully this program will get you there. And as always, if you ever would like to meet with me, uh, you can always book a one-on-one. -on -one. I've met with so many of you for complimentary Zoom sessions where we can strategize and talk and help you get ready for trial. So I encourage you to do that. All right, now, so we're at the point now where we're gearing up for trial. So what do you do? What are the steps? What are the steps that I take? And what does my firm do when we know this case is likely now going to trial? Or we think that, it may or may not, but we got to be ready, right? I mean, that's the way you ultimately will get the best results for your clients is if you are fully prepared and ready to go to trial. And sometimes uh, if you're a plaintiff, your adversary may want to call your bluff. They may think that uh, you don't have an expert who's going to come to court. They may push you all the way to jury selection. Uh, they may want to see sort of how it plays out before they'll talk turkey. So you need to be ready. And when you are ready, when you're fully prepared for trial, you're ready to show up, ready to pick that jury, have all your witnesses and evidence and exhibits and pretrial disclosures done, you're ready to go. Those are the cases that are usually going to settle because you're ready. You're not going to settle from a position of weakness. You're going to settle from a position of strength. And if the case doesn't settle, you're prepared and you go and do it. And you may be anxious, but once you get underway, you'll feel pretty good. In the next part, our last part next month, part six, 
we'll talk about the trial itself. So some of the stuff today will interact and overlap a little bit, um, but this is really the steps to get you right up to the point of jury selection. And that's where we'll pick up uh, when we start talking about the trial in the last part next month. All right. So it's important to know that all medical malpractice trials are unified, even in counties or locations that normally bifurcate trials. Bifurcation, as you likely know, is when you have one trial first on liability and then one trial afterwards if there is any finding of fault uh, on damages. It's split up. So here in New York, in the second department, cases are bifurcated. Uh, Westchester County, out on Long Island, um, in Queens. So in those situations, it'll be bifurcated, except if it's a medical malpractice case. So no matter where you are, even in jurisdictions that bifurcate trials, medical malpractice cases are unified. And if you think about it, it makes sense. It's because the medicine, the injuries, the causation, the liability, it's all intertwined. You just can't separate out liability from damages because ultimately there, you know, that's what a medical malpractice case is, is there was liability that caused something during the treatment. Okay. Or didn't, didn't treat. And that's what caused it. But anyway, they're all unified. So you're going to be uh, gearing up for the liability parts that we've talked about, uh, establishing a departure from good and accepted practice. If you're a plaintiff, if you're on the defense side, you're going to be gearing up to argue that there were no departures. You're also going to have to get ready to put on your case regarding causation. If you're a plaintiff, this is getting your experts, maybe the same, maybe multiple experts, um, the same as the liability, maybe a different one for causation, uh, to say that the malpractice caused these damages, okay? And again, it's not uncommon in a medical malpractice case, as we've talked about, to have certain medical experts regarding liability and other medical experts regarding causation. Easy example of that would be a failure to timely diagnose breast cancer. Uh, a radiologist failed to properly diagnose something on a mammogram that should have been caught. Okay, um, so you're going to have a radiology expert talk about the departures regarding liability, but then you're going to need a different expert, an oncologist, to talk about, well, would the treatment have been the same if they caught it earlier? Would the damages have been the same? Would they have been different? So the plaintiff and defense will both want to make sure they have their causation experts ready for trial. And then lastly is your damages. And as damages witnesses, you're going to consider experts, whether it's a medical expert talking about the future care that's going to be needed uh, for the injured party, whether it's an economic expert like a life care planner, a vocational planner, an economist, um, or it may be fact witnesses, lay witnesses, who are usually family members who can talk about um, their loss if it's a wrongful death case, or they can talk about how they've observed their loved one. Maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's a child, how they've suffered as a result of the injuries and the consequences of the malpractice. So you need to start thinking about all of this when you're gearing up for trial. And you need to know what the elements are. So we talked about you have to prove liability. You have to prove causation. You have to prove damages as plaintiffs. You're on the defense side. You need to know what the plaintiff needs to prove. So you can be ready to chip away 
and show that they haven't met their burdens uh, of proving liability, causation, damages. Maybe on the defense side, your sole focus is minimizing damages. Yeah, they didn't. Um, they they may have failed to diagnose a fracture in the ER, but there's no damages, and this is going to be our focus. Whatever side of the V, so to speak, you're on, plaintiff or defense, you need to know the elements in your case, and you need to figure out a game plan for how you're going to bring all that out in front of the jury at trial. I say jury because I believe unless the parties agree, you're always going to have a jury trial in a medical malpractice case. Uh, it's pretty rare that these are bench trials. So you could assume it's going to be a jury trial. The plaintiff usually asks for a jury, and if they don't, usually the defense will. Um, the best way to get a sense of the elements and what you really need to show at trial is something we discussed early on in the series, and that's the pattern jury instructions. Uh, we have those here in New York. Every state has their set of jury instructions. And we'll talk a little bit about this in the next part, but the jury instructions are ultimately what the jurors hear from the judge uh, is what they need to decide based on what you've shown or not shown at trial. At the end of closing arguments, the charges or the jury instructions are read to the jury and then they go deliberate. So you wanna know before trial what the jury is gonna be instructed, what the charges are for your specific case. And in a medical malpractice case, there are charges that are specific specific to a medical malpractice case. There are things that a judge is gonna to say to the jury that they need to consider when applying what they've heard at trial uh, to render their verdict that are unique to medical malpractice cases. So I'm gonna give you a couple of them now and you can jot these down or catch it again in a, a later recording. Uh, it's really easy to find uh, PJI, pattern jury instruction, PJI charges. You can Google, uh, you can find them on Lexis, Westlaw, uh, there are sets of books that have an index, so you can search the back of the index to find it. But I'm going to reel off a few that are really important for you to absolutely be aware of, preferably at the beginning of your case, when you're looking through it and working on it with your experts, uh, but certainly before you step foot in front of a jury in jury selection or in a courtroom, you must, must, must have these um, applicable sections of the PJI. So First of all, you've got PJI 2 colon 150, 2 colon 150, and that charges malpractice physician. You need to pull it up. You need to read it. You need to see what the standard charge is. Uh, and these are all New York charges. Uh, you can find the equivalent in your state if you're not in New York, but I'm sure uh, all other states have specific charges for medical malpractice as well. They'll all be somewhat similar, but likely a little bit different in language. And the essence of a malpractice case and the charge involving a physician is that you have to show that there was a deviation or a departure from accepted practice and that the departure or deviation was a proximate cause of injury or damage. So not very different from a regular negligence case, right? A car accident, a slip and fall, you have to prove fault, liability, and you have to prove that it caused the damages. So there's a specific charge here, but the language you'll see talks about a deviation from the sit, from the accepted practice or a departure from the standard of care. These are elements you're going to need to prove. You're going to look at the language of the charge when you're preparing. Um, 
Proximate cause charge is PJI 2 colon 70. Informed consent. Sometimes there's an issue that there was no consent form signed. The plaintiff is saying, I never would have undergone this procedure if they told me there was a risk of death, whatever it may be. There's a charge for informed consent. And you need to know what the jury is going to hear before you're preparing your witnesses. You want to prepare your doctor to say, this is the proper way to inform a patient about the risks of this procedure. And it's a departure from the standard of care. It's a deviation from accepted practice to fail to inform a patient about these risks. Then you want to prepare the plaintiff to say, I was never told that. And if I was told that, I wouldn't have gone ahead with the procedure. So you need to look at these charges because they're going to go into the elements of your case and what you're going to need to prepare your witnesses for, okay? There's a continuous treatment charge, which applies in medical malpractice cases sometimes. That's PJI 2 colon 149. And then there's many others, uh, but raise ipsa loquitur. Some of you know exactly what that is. Some of you may recognize the name from maybe law school. Raise ipsa loquitur, I think, and someone can correct me, uh, roughly translates into the thing that speaks for itself. And in essence, um, if you can prove that something was totally in control of the defendants, and the only way that this injury could have occurred was as a result of malpractice, you can get that charge. But again, you're going to have to have your expert lay out those elements. For example, a plaintiff goes in for a surgical procedure. The plaintiff is under anesthesia and out. There's no comparative fault. Plaintiff couldn't have done anything. There's a scalpel in the hand of a surgeon. The surgeon is the only one holding that scalpel. And during the procedure, that, that scalpel cuts right through a major artery, okay? And uh, there's death or serious injury as a result of that. If your expert is going to get on the stand and say, it is absolutely not a risk of that procedure to cut through a major artery, they were in the wrong place with the wrong technique, the only way that happens is if you're being sloppy and not good care and it's a departure. Then you could argue for a raise ipsa loquitur charge. Okay, so you want to take a look at that. Lastly, you want to get an idea of itemized verdicts. So you're going to look at PJI 2 colon 151A, 1 and 2, subdivisions 1 and 2. Uh, in medical malpractice cases, you're entitled and usually will have an itemized verdict. So it's not just was there a departure from good and accepted practice, yes or no, and proximate cause, yes or no. Uh, good trial attorneys, if you're on the plaintiff side, are gonna want multiple departures in there. Did they depart from good and accepted practice and failing to properly inform them of the risks? Did they depart from good and accepted practice and failing to give the proper anesthesia? Did they depart from good and accepted practice and failing to clean the knife? Whatever you feel you have, you can get multiple bites at the apple. That's sort of the phrase. On the defense side, you're going to want that one question, yes or no. You want to get in and out of there and try and get a no if you're on the defense side. You don't want multiple bites at the apple. So we'll talk about this in the next part about trying the case. But when you have a charging conference with the judge, um, after most of the evidence is in a trial and before summations and, and the, the jury is charged, um, the plaintiffs are going to ask for an itemized list of multiple departures. 
The defendants are going to say, no, judge, we just need one yes or no. And there's going to be a battle there and you need to be prepared for it and make sure that through trial, you've laid out the elements you need for each of those questions. So that's part of gearing it up. If you're joining us via podcast, the first attendance verification code for today's course is POD292. Again, that's POD292. You've got, you know, you know what's going on. You know what the charges are going to be. You know the language. You know the elements. And the great thing about the PJI is that they are annotated, meaning at the bottom of the language of the actual charge, so you can see what the judge is going to say, um, there's annotations. There's all these lists, and a lot of them, there's an index to them of cases that have had situations, when to give the charge, when not to give the charge, uh, examples, case law citing. So you, it's a really great resource that's way underused in our profession from both the plaintiff and the defense. Look at all these PJI charges. Look at all the annotations. You'll find cases on point. It's going to help you. You may say, oh, wait, we don't need to prove that. We just need this. So I'm going to have my experts say X, Y, and Z based on this case and this charge. All right. So read those annotations. Look at your PJIs. Find every charge that you think may relate to your medical malpractice case and, and work towards getting that charge by getting in the evidence. It's all about evidence, folks. This is what trials are for. Uh, trials are to admit evidence uh, that a jury can consider, that uh, they can base a decision on, uh, that's appropriate to be in evidence. It complies with the rules for admission of information. And there's basically two primary sources of evidence for jurors to consider and for a court to consider it's testimony right? It's getting your experts, your clients, um, lay witnesses. It's having them testify. Any testimony that comes out from the witness stand is evidence and can be considered. And then it's going to be documents and exhibits and images, physical evidence that jurors can look at. They can bring into the jury room with them. There's demonstrative evidence to educate a jury, to give them a sense of, of the subject matter. So you're going to need to bring in evidence, and it's kind of like, you know, those games where they say match up this uh, person with this uh, duty, and let's say they have plumber, carpenter, electrician, and then on the left, they have replacing light bulb, you know, repairing a broken uh, step and whatever, and you got to match who does what. That's kind of what you're doing in preparing for trial. You're saying, all right, I need to prove that they fail to provide uh, the proper information to get consent. There was a lack of informed consent. All right, I know I need to do that. I've looked at the charge. This is what I need to show. How am I going to get that evidence in? All right, let me look at what I've got from the case. I've got my file here. I'm thinking, all right, well, I have an expert. My expert's going to say that. All right, my expert's going to tell what the standard is. And on the defense side, you know they're going to be arguing lack of informed consent. So what do you have? Well, you may have an expert who's going to say, no, you generally don't say that. But what you do is you give them a consent form, which is even better because it's not, there's no mistaking what I said or what was heard. It's actually printed out. And we have a signed consent form and it was signed by the plaintiff acknowledging all this. So I'm going to use this documentary evidence at trial. All right. 
Then you got to say, all right, well, I know this documentary evidence helps. How do I get this into evidence? You can't just show up and say, here, judge, put this into evidence. Every item needs to go in through a witness who can authenticate it, um, or there may be a provision in the CPLR, such as I think it's 5108. Somebody correct me if I'm wrong. I probably am. But um, business records. So certain business records can go into evidence uh, without a witness on the stand. Hospital records can go in if they're properly subpoenaed and certified. So you can get it in through hospital charts. Maybe that document's right in the hospital chart. So what you need to do is you need to start working on a witness list. Who do you need to call a trial? Just because they were deposed, right? Maybe your adversary took their deposition. Doesn't mean you need to call them at trial. Doesn't mean your adversary is going to call them at trial. Um, so you need to decide when you're looking at your file and you're seeing who is questioned, um, which one of these witnesses will match up with what I need to prove or disprove. All right. So you're going to start working on a witness list when you're gearing up for trial. So like I said earlier, you're generally going to have liability witnesses or damages witnesses. OK, uh, they could be experts and they could be lay people. So let's take the case of someone that goes uh, for a mammogram and uh, the radiologist is alleged to have not read it properly. Uh, then a year or so later, the diagnosis comes up with breast cancer and they have to have a double mastectomy, have their breasts removed and continue with future care for the uh, indefinite future. Um, so let's say that's the, the, the gist of the case. So you'll have liability experts, so the radiologist, the plaintiff will need, and the defense will need a radiologist. Um, you're going to have a lay witness. You're going to want to put the plaintiff on to say, I went for my mammograms every year, every six months. And this is why I did it, to catch things early. And I did my part. And this is what happened as a result of it. I was told everything was fine. I didn't get any, any notice of any problems. And um, then you're going to have your causation experts for liability. All right. Then you're going to have your, your, your damages experts. Again, figure out what experts, what witnesses, what lay witnesses, and then start thinking about the order. Again, there's no right or wrong way. You don't have to put the plaintiff on first in anybody's case if you're the plaintiff's counsel. All right. Although plaintiffs go first in the litigation for putting forth their witnesses and the defense will go second after the plaintiffs finish with their presentation of evidence. As a plaintiff, you get to pick who goes first, who you put on the stand. You decide the order of witnesses. Sometimes it's traditional to put the plaintiff on first to give some background, uh, go through the whole scenario from liability all the way through damages, and then they're done and off the stand. But maybe you want to call an adverse witness first. Maybe you have a, a defense witness that gave you good testimony, and you want to get that defense witness on the stand first. Sort of put the, your adversary on their heels. They're thinking, ah, oh, I'll sit back. I'll just cross-examine some witnesses. I don't have to put on any of my witnesses until a while. We'll sort of see what happens. But let's say you, you call the, a defense witness first, put them up on the stand and start cross-examining them, which you can do. We'll talk about that next time. But um, that may be an interesting way to start off a case. Maybe you have a really great plaintiff. You want them to be first, or you want them to be the last witness to wrap it all up after the jury hears about all this 
horrific stuff the plaintiff's been in, they can finally get to meet the plaintiff. Um, maybe the plaintiff is not a great witness. Maybe they just don't tell their version well. Maybe you want to sandwich them in in between other witnesses. So these are decisions you make as the trial lawyer, but ultimately you're a storyteller and you're going to want to tell the story and you're going to want to present the evidence in a logical, flowing manner. And there's, like I said, there's not necessarily one way to do it. So how do you decide what order to put your witnesses on? Well, you workshop it, you think about it, you speak with your colleagues. If you don't have any, reach out to some. You can reach out to me or other people that you like to bounce things off of, um, but you can sort of figure it out. Sometimes it's not as complex and there aren't that many witnesses. Sometimes you don't have a choice because of availability of your experts. You know, you may have your main expert witnesses. I can only testify on Tuesdays um, and Tuesday's the first day of trial. Then you got to get that expert on and take him out of order. So, you know, what's the expression Mike Tyson said? You can plan as much as you want until you get punched in the face. So, you know, you plan, but you got to be able to bob and weave uh, to initiate the plan, sometimes even if it's not going as you hope. So start an actual witness list. Sit down and write out or type out your order of witnesses and why you're calling them, okay? We're going to talk about this next time at trial, but... You don't put witnesses on a stand just to have them get up there and talk. There has to be a methodology to what you elicit, either in direct or cross-examination. Every examination of every witness, there has to be a goal. You, have, you want to establish elements. You want to disprove things, whatever it is. That's why you're calling that witness. So when you're doing your order of witnesses, to the side, you put first plaintiff. We're going to talk about backgrounds, dates of treatment, what happened, damages. All right. Next witness, um, medical expert, Dr. Smith, going to talk about liability. Then next witness, doctor expert, Dr. Jones. We're going to talk about causation. Um, then I think I'll subpoena, and we'll talk about that in a moment, an adverse witness, because this goes into the liability and the causation, and I want to elicit this at this time. Then maybe we'll move over to damages. So it's all about getting organized and preparing so that you're prepared, you'll be able to properly prepare your witness so they know what to expect and it'll present nicely. The other thing that you're gonna wanna do is figure out your evidence and your demonstrative evidence. So what evidence through each witness do I plan to elicit? So next to each of these witnesses, you're gonna call a trial, whether it's a lay person, plaintiff, a defendant, an expert, you should list all the physical evidence that you want to admit through that witness. You may say, how am I gonna get this document in? This, is a, this was signed by somebody in the hospital. Oh, okay, I think they work for this doctor and the doctor's note is signed off on it. I can get this in through that doctor. Um, so you earmark that document for that witness. I have a photograph I want to get in of the plaintiff uh, in the hospital. How do I get that in? Well, we're going to need to get that in probably through the plaintiff to say, yes, that's me and authenticate the photograph. So you want to start thinking about all these things as part of your preparation. Expert disclosure. Expert disclosure. Let's talk about this for a few minutes. You must, must, must disclose your experts prior to trial, like in any other case. In New York, we have civil uh, practice rule 
3101 subdivision D subdivision one. Uh, if you've been practicing in New York for a long time, you know 3101 D1 disclosure. Uh, you know that statute and that section quite well. And it's the section that controls pretrial discovery of experts. So it's the same statute that applies in any kind of negligence or accident case, but there's a little twist when it comes to medical experts in a medical malpractice case. So the biggest thing you need to know is that when you're disclosing your liability experts, your causation experts for either side, plaintiff or defense, um, you need not give the name or identity of that witness. And, you know, I don't know the full history of how this all came about, but it's sort of a bit of a cat and mouse thing that goes on between the plaintiff and defense bar, uh, where we don't want to share who our expert is. I guess the theory is on the plaintiff side, maybe um, everyone's worried if you disclose who your expert is in advance, maybe some heat will come down on that expert before a trial. Oh, we hear you're testifying as an expert against other doctors. Um, or maybe on the defense side, the same thing can happen. So whatever it is, it's a part of Rule 3101 D1. It's a subdivision um, where you'll see it. Subdivision I talks about it. And it states that, um, where do I have it here? Okay, it says, quote, in an action for medical, dental, or podiatric malpractice, a party in responding to a request may omit the names of medical, dental, or podiatric experts but shall be required to disclose all other information concerning such experts otherwise required by this paragraph. So how does this play out? So basically, other cases, you may attach the witness's curriculum vitae. Let's say it's an engineer in a case. Let's say it's uh, an expert um, accident reconstructionist or economist. What I normally do is say, we're going to call this witness a trial in my 3101D disclosure. I give the name, I attach the curriculum vitae, I attach the report, and you serve it, no big deal. In a medical malpractice case, we play the game like everybody else does, and you don't give the name of your medical expert who's going to talk about liability or causation, but what you do is you say, we will call this expert. This expert is board certified in cardiology. This expert got um his slash her training because you don't want to say if it's a man or a woman right because it might help identify uh training at such and such medical school and did a residency here and is on staff at a major metropolitan hospital um i've included in the materials a 3101 d1 expert exchange of a cardiologist we had in a medical malpractice case so feel free to look at that um that sample complies fully with the requirements it gives forth all the expertise. It gives forth all the opinions that they'll say. Um, since you're not attaching a report, you want to have a pretty robust 3101 D1 disclosure in a medical malpractice case. If there's multiple departures, you want to put all of those in the 3101. The expert will say that the defendant or defendants departed from good and accepted practice or deviated from the accepted standard care, standard of care. Uh, in failing to X, Y, and Z. Um, this expert is also expected to testify that the defendant departed from good and accepted practice and failing to 
do this uh, evaluation and, and, and failing to do this referral and then failing to inform. So you want to list all of those because if you leave something out, that expert can be precluded at trial. The minute that question comes up, if you don't put in something about informed consent in your 3101 disclosure and the expert starts talking about departures from standard of care regarding to liability, and then you move on and you're directing, you start questioning that expert about, well, you know, is there a typical uh, consent that's normally provided or requested in these cases? And your adversary stands up objection. What's the objection, counselor? They didn't disclose this expert's going to be opining on consent. Well, counsel, let me see the 3101 disclosure. They see it. If it's not in there, granted, sustained, move on. All right. So throw the whole kit and caboodle in your disclosures. Um, you don't have to ask about it if you choose not to strategically, but when in doubt, put more in there. So you're going to want to get your 3101 D1 disclosures out the minute you know you're going to trial. Get those disclosures out early. This way, if there's any objections, you can deal with it. You can supplement them if need be. The reality is that most practitioners in this area that handle plaintiff and defense medical malpractice, we all have software, we all have resources that you basically type in the schools, the hospitals, the training, and you get a sort of a short list of doctors. We can usually identify each other's experts. Um, if summary judgment motions uh, were submitted, then there may be uh, the names are with those affidavits, depending on whether you're the moving or responding party. So you may have the names already, but get your disclosures out early. Um, there is no set time frame. I talk about this in some of the other um, types of cases that we litigate in the field of personal injury law. 3101 D1 does not set a time frame within which uh, expert disclosure must be served. A lot of people always think it's 30 days before trial. Nope, nothing in the statute gives a time frame. All right, we've had cases, not a medical malpractice one, but my father, I'm sure is nodding, he remembers this one, where the defense literally gave us a disclosure in Brooklyn at trial um, when the expert was coming to court that day to testify. They handed us the 3101 D1 disclosure for their expert, and then they told the court, we'd like to call our next witness, Dr. So-and-so or expert so-and-so. And we're like, time out here, hold on. Um, and uh, ultimately, it's in the court's discretion. It's in the court's discretion. I'm going to read you something straight from the statute. Here's where it says, um, quote, however, where a party for good cause shown retains an expert an insufficient period of time before the commencement of trial to give appropriate notice thereof, the party shall not thereupon be precluded from introducing the expert's testimony at the trial solely on grounds of noncompliance with this paragraph. In that instance, upon motion of any party made before or at trial, or on its own initiative, the court may take, make whatever order may be just. How about that? Maybe some eyebrows raised that no one actually read the statute and knew about this. But yeah, you could be pretty late and you can oftentimes get the expert on the stand. Okay. Um, so don't play games, get your disclosures out early. This way, if there's no objection in response to your disclosures, you're good to go. 
They can't object to trial. You say, we served them with this six months ago, two months ago, one month ago. This is the first time we're hearing any objection. So they're a little bit late. Uh, we don't have time to curate. Uh, they've waived their objection. So get out your disclosures promptly. So you get your 3101s out. One of the, one of the comments uh, Patrick, thank you, submitted was that many judges will have a 30-day rule that they want the disclosures uh, on experts provided within 30 days of trial. So that just raises another point. In everything we do, always, always, always check your preliminary conference orders, your compliance conference orders, any pretrial orders for end dates, uh, you'll find there may be deadline dates or timeframes for disclosure of experts, for eliminate motion submission, for jury charge submission. Um, so you're going to want to check orders. You're also going to want to check uh, your trial judge's individual rules. Most have individual rules. So check with your trial judge um, and find out what those rules are uh, and always make sure you're in compliance because they are often much more restrictive than uh, CPLR or what you believe are the uh, timeframes that normally apply. So make sure to check those. All right, now you've done your disclosures, you've got your witnesses, you know your elements, you're getting close, right? So serve a subpoena or more than one. Why do you serve subpoenas? Well. Subpoenas are for witnesses or records that you know you're going to need at trial to get in this evidence. There may be something you want to get in in the hospital chart. That's how you're going to get it into evidence. Uh, but you got to get the hospital chart into evidence. Well, how am I going to do that? You're going to do it by subpoenaing a certified record of the hospital chart. There's a CPLR provision that allows for the direct admission into evidence of a properly subpoenaed and certified hospital chart. You do not need a witness on the stand. You can offer it in outside of the presence of the jury, uh, and uh, there's no proper objection to that. So figure out what records you need to subpoena. You're also going to want to subpoena uh, all the bills, the medical bills, because again, those, when you get them certified and subpoenaed, those will go right into evidence. And that's a great way to build up your economic case. If it's a big case, uh, which many medical malpractice cases are, and there was a lot of treatment and a lot of billing, you're going to want to put that in. So at the end of the day, when you're arguing to the jury about damages, you could say, look, it's in evidence. There was $250,000 just in medical expenses. That's not disputed. It's in evidence. You're, you're going to see it. It's right here. You could take it into the jury room. That's the small part here. That's the past expense. And you're going to have an item on the jury verdict form. Uh, how much do you award for past medical expenses? How much for future? So you're going to want to think about these things. You're going to get the subpoenas out. When you do that, you subpoena these records, mostly medical records, um, to the courthouse. Find out the address. There's usually an address for a subpoenaed records room in each courthouse. Um, and that's where you will subpoena those records to. You don't subpoena them to your office, like you may subpoena other information during litigation. For trial, it's got to go right to the subpoenaed record room. And we'll talk about how you manage that when you get to trial, how you get those records, how that look at those records, how it works. But I gave you two samples uh, in the uh, materials um, for records. I think it was for records from Westchester County Medical Center. You may want to subpoena treating records. You may want to subpoena records regarding liability, where the tortfeasor was. So get those subpoenas out early. 
uh, for the 20 some odd percent of you who have tried cases, I'm sure you've all, all, all of you, like me, been in a situation where, oh my goodness, where are these records? We sent out the subpoenas a couple of weeks ago. They're not at the courthouse. You're waiting. You're about to start trial. You're calling your assistant. Just say, help me. You're calling the hospital. Get these records. We have enough stress trying cases as it is. Um, do it early. Make sure they're there. You can go and check in the subpoenaed records room. Sometimes you can check online when they've been received. Get your subpoenas out early. If there are witnesses you want to subpoena, maybe it's a maybe it was a, a non uh, a non participating physician that said something very helpful to you, but they're not willing to come in as a retained physician. You may have to subpoena them uh, to come to court. So get those subpoenas out. Um, if you want to call an adverse witness. Uh, to trial, like I mentioned earlier, to put up on the stand. Uh, the first thing I always do is I reach out to my adversary uh, and say, hey, I want to call Dr. So-and-so uh, to the stand. Will you agree to produce uh, the doctor when I'm ready? And I'm going to want him or her on this day of the trial, the second day, or as my first witness. And then uh, see what they say. They may say, yep, we will produce them. Or they may say, no, you need to subpoena them. We say, okay, will you accept service of the subpoena? Do you want me to have my process server show up and serve? These are all things you need to sort out early on uh, when you know you're going to trial. So there's no ambiguity when you call that witness and the witness isn't there and the judge is like, what's going on? You can explain. I spoke with my adversary. We wanted to put this witness on. They confirmed they'd make the witness available. Um, if you have letters, you can show it. You know, you should maybe have an email or a letter acknowledgement um, or an affidavit of service. So get your subpoenas out. All right. The other thing you need to do when you're gearing up, I got five minutes left. I think we'll get there is reach out to your experts, get their schedules, get their availability. If today is May 3rd and I know I've got a trial starting July 8th, I'm going to call up my experts. And I'm going to say, it looks like we're on for jury jury selection July 8th. I don't know what's going to happen. Is it pick and pass? Or are we going to get put over? I think my adversary is going to ask for an adjournment, but are you generally around? I need to know, are you going to be out of town for a month? Are you around? Um, because if they are going to be away, you need to address that, right? You can't go to trial if you don't have your expert. And if you find out early enough, you can get consent from your adversary to maybe adjourn the trial briefly based on the scheduling of your expert, okay? But find that out. Find out when they're available. Find out what days they're available, whether it's in the morning or afternoon. Um, you know, find out where they're going to be. You may have an out-of-town witness. Maybe you want to stream their testimony in uh, over Zoom or some other video. Reach out to the court and find out if that's acceptable. Find out from your adversary if they're going to object to that uh, so that there are no surprises as well. Uh, maybe you have a treating doctor that you want to call about damages, but they're going to be on vacation in Morocco for that month. Uh, perhaps now that you know you're going to need them, you could schedule a video uh question and answer session. You serve notice on your adversary, uh, and in essence, you do a direct and exam and you videotape it, and then you can play that at the time of trial. These are all things that you want to start working on early. So at the last minute, you're not caught off guard and unprepared. Preparation, preparation, preparation. You want to consider exchanging um, exhibits, demonstrative exhibits. 
with the cardiologist witness uh, disclosure uh, that I have in the materials, I put in a couple of anatomical exhibits uh, that he ended up using at trial. And um, sometimes you don't have to, it's not by rule that you have to disclose demonstrative evidence. Um, but I like to do it early on if it's not a big deal, uh, just anatomy charts, things like that, um, demonstrative evidence that this way, again, you can show it to your adversary and it shows you're prepared, you're gearing up for trial, and that when you get to court, if there's any objection, you could say, hold on, I exchanged this two months ago and they didn't object to it. You know, what's their objection? This is not fair. It's untimely, that type of thing. Um, think about what kind of exhibits you may want in evidence, perhaps weren't asked for by your adversary. I had a death case once where I wanted to have photographs of the decedent and her family. Um, I was never demanded or asked for photographs but I didn't want there to be objections. And if there were, I wanted to know what they were. So I sent those in advance. I said, find these 20 photographs that I plan on introducing some or all at the time of trial. Thank you. So get all that together. And then lastly, in the last two minutes I have, we'll talk a little bit more about this next month at the time of trial, but start building your trial folder. I talk about this in my book, um, the how to litigate a personal injury case. Uh, it's in prior CLEs. What when you're gearing up for trial, you want to to sort of weed out a lot of the excess you have in your actual file on the case. We all have big files, whether they're digital now or paper or a combination of both. You want to get organized. You want to have your file for folder for jury selection, your folder for exhibits, your folder for jury charges, your folder for each witness. So you could put their report or their transcript or the 3101 disclosure in there. Start getting organized. So that's part of the preparation process. When you show up for trial, all this work you've done, you have it easily at your fingertips. You can color code the subfolders. You can alphabetize them. Oh, they want to know if I had a 3101 disclosure for Dr. Jones? Well, here you go. You open up your trial folder, Dr. Jones, you open it, you have Dr. Jones's records, you've got the 3101 disclosure, affidavit of service, boom, you're ready. Um, some language is used that you know is from the PJI and so, oh, he said it was a deviation. That's not proper. Well, your honor is actually going to be charging them on a deviation. Uh, I have for the court's reference PJI 2 colon 50, and I'm happy to provide it to the court and you pull it right out. So get organized start working on your trial folder. It's part of the preparation process. So I think I cover most of it. Obviously, there's so many things. We can talk about it now in the Q&A. Um, feel free to stay around for the next half hour. This is where a lot of the good stuff happens. Uh, so I encourage you to stay and I'll take questions. I'll go through the Q&A and try and address each and every one of them. Uh, we'll be meeting again for part six, our last installment of the six-part series. It's going to be June already. I can't believe it. Um, and uh, we'll talk about the trial. That's how we'll wrap it up. Um, if you haven't listened to the podcast, the Mentor ESQ podcast, I encourage you to do it. It's a lot of this good stuff, also a lot of interviews with interesting people. And uh, if you are listening to it now, uh, I thank you for being a listener. I know many of you are. I'd ask you just to um, 
give me a good rating uh, on your podcast uh, sites when you can. That helps. Uh, also, my book is on Amazon. It's easy to get. It's in Kindle. Uh, all proceeds of my book go to my charitable causes, which you can learn about on the mentoresq.com. So the book can help you and can help others in the meantime. So if you're interested, just go to Amazon, type in my name, and the book will be there. Um, all right. Now we are going to go to uh, the Q&A. Like I said, some of them I answered already, uh, but I will uh, try and get through them all. All right. Uh, Richard Cordero is asking, how many people do I depose in a malpractice case on average? Um, so how many do I depose and how much money do you have to have available to pay for them and to attend the depositions of the opposing party? So on an average malpractice case, um, typical case, let's say it's one doctor, you're going to be deposing the doctor. If you're a plaintiff, the defendant's going to usually be deposing the plaintiff. Sometimes it's as simple as that. You do not have to pay to take the deposition of a defendant in a case. So there usually is not a cost involved. Uh, in state court, we do not do depositions of experts, but in federal court, we do. If you happen to be taking the deposition of a medical expert in a federal case, and it's your adversary's expert, you have to pay their cost. Most medical experts have a fee schedule of how much they charge per hour, how much they charge for a deposition, how much they charge for trial. Um, you're looking at probably $5,000, uh, give or take, to question uh, an adverse party's medical expert if you have the ability to do that, which you generally will not in state court. Okay, Robert is asking, does the fourth department still require expert witness disclosures for attending physicians? I do not know the answer to that. I am downstate. Uh, I have never tried a medical malpractice case. Uh, I don't think I've tried any case in the fourth department that's gone to verdict. So I don't know the answer for that. I can tell you downstate, uh, certainly in the first and second department, you do not need to give a 3101 disclosure for a treating physician um, unless they will be opining specifically on departures and causation, then you need to do that. But if they're going to talk about the treatment rendered, future damages, you do not need a 3101 disclosure downstate in New York uh, for a treating physician. Um, Joshua is asking, um, does trial looming in the near future encourage settlement of medical malpractice cases? So as in other cases, generally it does. Um, I'm always trying to work towards settlement in all of our firm's cases. That's ultimately our goal and should be all of our goals as lawyers. It's not, I want to go to trial, I want to go to trial, I want to go to trial. It's, I want to get resolution for my client. And if you can get that resolution prior to trial as a plaintiff, if you can get a satisfactory settlement um, as a defendant, if you can make the case go away completely, or if you can get a satisfactory settlement, that's what we're all here to do. Um, but when two parties can't agree on the merits of a case and the value of a case, that's when trials happen. So it's usually as you get closer to a trial, like in any other case, uh, when settlement will occur in a medical malpractice case. Um, some firms take other firms more seriously than others. Um, so depending on your reputation, uh, depending on any prior cases you've had, either against that defendant or that defendant's firm, that may make a difference. But I encourage everyone to always explore mediation, alternative dispute resolution, high-low 
binding arbitrations if you can do that. That's why I also have encouraged people to always file for summary judgment because when summary judgment motions are pending, especially when the plaintiff moves, which is unusual, that's usually a point where uh, settlement discussions can take place. So I encourage you to always reach out, call, email, always push from both sides, always discuss settlement because as we all know, you know, what, 95, 99% of cases do resolve prior to going to a jury. So why delay the inevitable? Why don't you kind of roll up your sleeves and get to it? But sometimes both sides need to know the other side uh, is ready to go. So it's after you get your disclosures out, after they see what your case will look like in front of a jury that they're willing to talk settlement. All right, Kathleen is asking to be careful in the third department. Plaintiff must serve expert disclosure at the time of filing the note of issue. Defendant's disclosures are due 60 days thereafter. Thank you, Kathleen. Like I said, I'm not as familiar. I'm downstate with the third department. So be super careful with that and stay on it. You must, must know the rules of engagement for where you practice. And sometimes different courthouses, different judges have different rules of engagement. So start at the biggest level with the CPLR, with disclosure 3101. And then you're going to look at the, the department you're in. You're going to look at the courthouse you're in, the county, the judge. Uh, the jury part, and make sure you've checked all of those to make sure you don't blow it with your disclosures, because that would be malpractice. Okay, Charles is asking, if there's diversity jurisdiction in a medical malpractice case, would it be federal preferable to litigate and try the case in federal court? Good question. We've litigated medical malpractice cases in federal court. Some have worked out well, some have not. Generally speaking, I my preference would be to stay away from it. Again, you'd only get in there if you have diversity of citizenship. Otherwise, you don't have a reason to be in federal court on a med mal case. It's because expert disclosure is mandatory. Uh, depositions, reports. So on the one hand, you've got to lay out your entire case. Disclosure experts, put them through a deposition so both sides know exactly what's coming from the other side and who the experts are gonna be. That can be helpful. You could see each other's case, but on the other hand, it's gonna be pricey, gonna be pricey. You're gonna have to pay for all of these experts. You're gonna have to pay your experts to write reports. Uh, it gets up there and it's tough. So you also need a unanimous verdict in federal court which also for a plaintiff is much more difficult. So I would say that defendants and my colleagues out there, if you wanna chime in, whether you like federal court or not, I would say defendants are probably satisfied and feel good about it. Uh, plaintiffs generally are not such a huge fan of federal court for a medical malpractice case. Um, Michael, am I concerned that bills may affect the compensation focus of the jury? If I'm asking for 5 million and the bills are 250,000, so I think it will dilute the pain and suffering award. That's a great question. I think that um, my short answer is no. So it depends why, what the basis is. If you think your case is worth $5 million, I would ask you, what's that based upon? Is it just pain and suffering? You think it's a real bad injury? Um, it may be hard to get big awards when you're just on pain and suffering, even for a bad injury, without some type of future economic loss. But if the future life care plan and future vocational loss and the economics are showing future care is going to be three or four million dollars, 
then I say go for it. Say the 250, that's past. That's just within the first couple of months, you know, leading up and leading up to trial now. But look what we've got moving forward. This is a young person. Uh, we've got huge damages. So I think that's a judgment call, certainly. Um, if you're worried that the jury may say, oh, the bills were only 250. We'll just double that or triple it and give them 500 or 750 pain and suffering. So the whole award will be a million. But you think you're entitled to more. Maybe the injury is bigger or warrants more. You may not want to, or you just stipulate and put it in and just don't give it too much umph in your summation. Say, yeah, this is a small part. You know, this is this is just paying a small amount of the bills. Let's talk about the real injury here. So that's why I like to put the economics in always first. It's sort of a stepping off platform. And I guess the way that you parlay your hard past economic numbers into your future and your pain and suffering awards, that's in your skill as an advocate. So um, there's some room to decide how you'd want to play that out. If you're joining us via podcast, the second attendance verification code for today's course is POD614. That's P. O-D-6-1-4. All right. Joseph is saying CPLR 2305D, you could subpoena records for trial to your office. All right. Well, take a look at that. And uh, if you can subpoena them to your office and still have them certified and get them in, go for it. Why not? The safest bet, though, is still for trial to subpoena to the courthouse because it's a direct chain of custody. Generally, what's done is you're going to subpoena the hospital chart. It's going to go to the records room. You cannot take it out of the records room. You can show up and you can inspect it uh, by showing you're involved with the case. You have to give your business card. You have to show the caption, show you're, you're part of, a, of an attorney involved in that case. Then there's a requisition that's submitted. They will bring out the subpoenaed records that are sitting back there. You can go through them all to make sure everything's there. You can Xerox anything that maybe you didn't have that you want to bring back to your office, but you got to put everything back in and you got to give it back. And there's a reason for that, because then when you go to admit it into evidence at the time of trial, it's an authenticated, proper, full set. If you subpoena to your office or if your adversary does, I'd be a little concerned my adversary may pull out a few pages that aren't helpful, right? It's a 2,000-page chart. Do you want to sit and go through all of that and check it against yours? I don't know. So um, so I think you need to decide uh, based on your case and based on those records, uh, the importance of them. And if it's something super important, send them to the courthouse. Um, and you have to serve authorizations, by the way, with your subpoenas. Um, and you have to pay for those records. Some people say, wait, I'm not getting them. I'm subpoenaing these 2,000 pages to the courthouse. Why should I have to pay five, $600 for these records? Well, you do. It's the cost of doing business, folks. All right. Um, Charles, do I need to disclose beforehand the order of my witnesses, including adverse witnesses? No, you don't. You don't, unless the judge's rules require that. Um, you certainly should disclose who your witnesses are. But as a plaintiff uh, and as a defendant, you can call them in whatever order you wish. Now, if you're going to be requesting that they produce somebody for you, an adverse witness, um, you need to let them know when. 
because it's not fair that you go through and the trial starts. And if you don't give them notice, you say, aha, I want to call defendant's uh, employee to the stand. And counsel's being like, you didn't give me, you didn't tell me you need them day one. Um, I think the uh, presumption is that plaintiffs will call their own witnesses first. So um, if you're going to call an adverse witness, I definitely think uh, it's proper to give a heads up. Uh, but I do not believe there's any requirement of giving a witness list uh, unless the court does require uh, the order of witnesses and wants to know who's getting on the stand when, then you have to do it. All right. Um, Robert, the scenario of calling the defendant to the stand, CPLR 2303 authorizes service on their attorney, whether they agree to accept or not. It's a new provision, not well known, but can be useful. Thank you, Robert, for sharing that. That's awesome to know. I didn't know that. Um, so yeah, use that, uh, and subpoena whoever you want through counsel. That's great. If it's the defendant, obviously to the stand, serve it on them. Now, what I'd like to know, Robert, is are you still permitted to serve them directly or must you, uh, serve them through counsel? Because sometimes look, it's a way to shake people up. When you serve the defendant directly, a process server shows up and says, I want you on this day at trial in that subpoena, you know, the defendant may not be happy, and that may rustle some things up, a call to the lawyer, a call to the carrier, maybe why aren't you settling this case, what's going on. So strategically, sometimes we like to serve the witness, uh, but usually as a courtesy, we will offer counsel to accept it because that's how we practice. And, you know, I'm a big promoter on us getting along well with our adversaries, and you don't want to make their lawyer look bad and get a call from your adversary saying, why'd you serve them? You know, that wasn't cool. You, I would have accepted that. You could, you know, pursuant to this new statute, you could serve me. So uh, check that out. But thank you for bringing that to our attention. All right, Jennifer is saying that she thinks it's best to subpoena to the clerk's office, no chain of custody, um, and parties can agree uh, what the record consists of without going to the clerk's office. Of course, you need to know, and Jennifer, thank you for that. Judges like when adversaries uh, at trial agree on things. They don't want to have to make decisions that they can be appealed on. So if you show up and say, Your Honor, we agreed that we're going to just submit these 12 pages of this 2000 page hospital chart and put that into evidence in lieu of the whole chart, the judge will say, great, thank you. It's in. So obviously, your first step is see what you can stipulate to with your adversaries. Um, you know, a lot of people call me up and say, I'm wondering, can I, how do I get this into trial? Uh, I have this piece of evidence. And I always say, well, did you reach out to your adversary and say if they'd agree to it? No, I didn't think to do that. Go for it. Worst they could say is no, but there may be something they want to put into evidence and they're going to need your favor, uh, your consent. So it goes both ways. So my general rule and our firm philosophy is if it's not going to hurt you, okay, and you know it's going to go in anyway, ultimately, just agree to it. I remember I had a, a pretrial conference with the court and um, I had on my, uh, uh, I asked the judge to so order a subpoena of a police officer. This is not a med mal case, but, um, and he said, why are you subpoenaing the police officer? So I need to get the police report in and I have to put it in through the police officer. And he turns to defense counsel. He says, you're going to give him a hard time? about putting in the police report. I don't wanna take one of our cops off the street. They're doing their job to protect citizens, uh, to have to sit here just to get this in. 
And then the lawyer starts frumfering around, well, I'd have to speak with my client. Technically, they don't agree to that. They want the, no, 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 counsel. You tell your client, the judge is saying, I'm not going to be happy if you drag this court officer in just to get this police report in. Obviously, we got the police report in. So, you know, if there's things that aren't going to hurt you, don't fight just to fight, you know, get it in. Maybe you could work it out. Maybe there's some words or things that you can agree to redact uh, that don't apply. Okay. Um, Sanford is asking, how do I establish the foundation to admit charts and timelines that you prepared in advance of trial? That's great. So what Sanford is referring to is, let's say there are many services out there that will prepare, let's say, a pain and suffering chart. And they're really great to use if you're arguing that as a plaintiff that your client suffered quite a bit before passing away while in the hospital. And they can go through and find out whenever pain medicine was prescribed or administered. They can go through and, and the chart and find where the complaints, patient complaining of pain, patient says, quote, you know, I'm in pain, whatever it may be. And you can create these spreadsheets, you can create charts. So generally what I would do is you can get them in a couple of ways. First, serve it on your adversary and say, do you have an objection? What's the objection? Um, then if they do, sometimes you can um, call in the person that prepared the exhibit. Uh, did my firm request you prepare some demonstrative exhibits for this case? Yes. Uh, can you? Did you prepare this? You show them it? Yes. What is it? It's a chart showing uh, different types of admission of this. And what process did you go through to prepare this? Well, I looked through the chart. I confirmed with this, I can corroborate uh, what says what from here and there. Is the chart in evidence? Yes, it is. Is this all based on things actually in the chart? Yes, it is. And usually you can get it in that way. Um, so I would share those with your adversary and I'd say, take a look, compare it to the chart. If you have any issues, let me know. I'd rather not have to bring in my expert uh, and pay them to come to court for this. Um, and then you could always run it by the judge. And the judge may say, no, no, as long as it is mirroring something that's exactly in the chart that's in evidence, it's coming in. Uh, I don't want you to have to bring somebody in, but it, that's the way I'd handle that. Okay, Joseph, um, is it my understanding that you can take a trial deposition of an out-of-state or unavailable expert without a court order or your adversary's consent? You know, it's interesting. There's a provision in 3101 that I actually was reading before that talked about serving notice and they can accept your offer of a deposition of a witness. And I, I haven't done that. I've never tried to go to trial using a deposition of an out-of-state witness without the consent. I think it's it's fraught with problems because they're entitled, if it's a, someone you're gonna call a trial, they're entitled to cross-examine them. So how do you just take a deposition of them um, and put it on a trial that's not fair to your adversary? And I think I would expect a judge to sustain an objection. So I think if you work it out and give them the opportunity um, and they refuse and you cover yourself and explain why and, and try and work it out, then maybe that's a basis. But I can't answer that without doing a little bit more homework. If anybody else has uh, any response to that, uh, please feel free to hop in. Um, but th that's tricky if you have someone out of state or unavailable. And that's why I would want to get my adversary on board. I'd want to set it up the right way as a direct and a cross, and then you're in good shape. All right. Terrence is asking, what time do you usually serve your expert exchanges in a med mal case? Terrence, we've been talking about it. Again, check your rules wherever you are. 
Third department, I just learned you need to file it with your note of issue uh, in New York. You can show up with it in your hand at the time of trial and still have a shot. I do not recommend doing it. As a general rule of thumb, I like to think no later than 30 days before trial. I feel that that's a fair amount of time to your adversary. Um, I feel it's a fair amount of time for you to say, well, we didn't know if it was really going to go when we had that date. Um, And again, after the note of issues filed, usually between that time and the 30 days before jury selection, within that time, we'll serve it. Um, If we have it already and buttoned up and we think that maybe they, you know, we haven't done motion practice uh, and we want them to know we have an expert and what our expert's going to say, usually you need to exchange that before your adversary will take you seriously for purposes of discussing settlement. So if you've got it, the note of issues filed, you're not worried about them asking questions of your client about the the exchange or anything, uh, I would serve it as soon as you can after the note of issues filed. I think that's good practice. what trial, uh, Stephen's asking, what of any trial presentation presentation software do you use or recommend? So if you've been following me on a lot of these programs, you know, I like to say that I'm a bit old school, um, which is still hard to believe. I still feel like a young lawyer, even though I'm not. So I always have yellow pads, right? I'm a yellow pad guy. Thank you, dad. I learned that from my father and it's sort of how I process and how I think. Um, But I do know there are a lot of people that have their laptops and they go to trial with their laptop and use it primarily. Um, They have all kinds of displays and programs and overhead uh, imagery that they use. There's tons of stuff out there. I'm not the guy to ask about it. I love hands-on exhibits. I will take something, I have my exhibit people blow it up on two foot by three foot foam core and uh, I like to hold it. I like to show it to the jury. I like to put it on an easel. I like to have exhibits all over the courtroom. I like to get them organized for summation. Uh, if you followed any of my presentations on closing arguments, I talk about how I organize all my blowups so I can hold them up, put them on easels, use them through summation. I'll use them with witnesses. I just think that's a great way to go about it. I have had cases where I brought a projector because I did do a huge maybe accident reconstruction and it's a multiple multiple frame slideshow. And I'll put that up on a screen and have the expert go through it. And, and I'll have someone there to help me. So I'm not worried about it going through that. Um, but that's the extent of my tech in a courtroom. Uh, it's blowups. And if I'm going to use a projector, I've got a nice little projector. You can get some really good ones for a couple hundred dollars. You plug it into your laptop. You can buy a, a screen that opens up that's portable. And I'll use that as well. But otherwise, I love big demonstrative evidence. I've done all kinds of fun stuff. Uh, subway accident case, some of you know about that I had. I mean, we had a scale model of a subway uh, train with all the cars and the people and the tracks, and we were able to move it around based on where it would stop at this breaking point. And that's the way that I think I can connect best with a jury is using that hands-on type of type of demonstrative evidence. Okay. Um, Joshua is asking, how willing are judges to adjourn medical malpractice cases? Are their attitudes different for medical malpractice, different from other types of negligence? You know what, Joshua? I think that there are their attitudes are a little bit different. I tend, you'll you'll usually find, not always, certainly in New York County and Queens County, 
there are judges that just handle medical malpractice cases. They are known for handling the med mal part, right? So you're going to be on track with them for a while. They'll probably keep the whole case the whole way through. They'll talk with counsel about trial dates. They know it's difficult to get doctors' schedules on, on par. So they'll work with you. Um, so it is different. It's not showing up for a trip and fall case uh, on a general calendar call asking for an adjournment. So I think that if you have a medical malpractice case, as long as you and your adversary are on the same page, you'll be good to go. And that's where you need to you know, have that rapport with your adversaries. You call each other up. Just be honest. Say, look, my expert's going to be away. You know, I want to move forward. We've got a problem. How are you looking? When do you think we can have your experts, my experts on board? Let's work it out with ourselves. Because then you go to the trial judge and you say, Your Honor, we know you have this set for next month, um, but counsel and I, we're running into scheduling problems. We've worked it out. We can have all of our witnesses, all of our experts ready to go. No more adjournments. Um, in two and a half months on this date, it doesn't conflict with anybody. Can we please adjourn it to that day? We'll be ready to go. I think most judges are really amenable to that. That's been my experience. Everybody can chime in. So I think it is a little bit different. Um, they are, they're deemed more complex. They're usually on a complex track, different from a standard track. So you get a little bit of extra uh, appreciation from the judges. Um, and the lawyers in this field on the plaintiff and defense side are usually pretty buttoned up on the ball. The courts know that. They know you're not delaying for just because you don't want to go to trial, and they'll be respectful of that. Christopher is asking, do hospitals have videos of the operation or procedure that you can subpoena? Good question. Some do, some don't. My understanding is if they're going to videotape a surgical procedure, they need explicit written consent um, from the patient before doing that. So you'd want to check all the forms, see if it was in there in one of the consent forms that we know patients all sign when they're being wheeled in to the operating room. Uh, one of our standard demands is always for photos and videos of the plaintiff or the incident involved. We do that in our medical malpractice cases as well. So they need to provide that in discovery if it exists. Um, and they, they certainly can't use it at trial without disclosing it to you in advance. Um, and if you want it for trial, you need to ask in discovery if they have it and find out. Okay. Um, Charles is asking, what is my opinion on the use of separate settlement counsel? Um, I don't like it if they're outside of your practice. Some people have their law firm set up where they have their trial person and then they have their in-house person who settles cases. So it would go like this. Uh, my father and I, or more likely my partner, Jason, who handles a lot of our medical malpractice cases uh, before they get up to trial or before I may be trying it, he may say, listen, you know, I have a rapport with you, Mr. and Mrs. Adversary. We've gone this far. At this point, you know, Andrew's going to try the case, um, but I'd like to see if we can settle it. And he may be the settlement person. Um, and say, we can, great, if not, it'll be tried. So some people will separate the trial lawyer from the settlement person. We don't really do that in our firm. We're small, we're small volume. So I'm always involved. If it's a case I know that's going to trial in these settlement discussions or in mediations, um, but I would definitely not refer it outside to a lawyer who's not in your practice to be the person to talk settlement. No, you need to show your adversary that this is your firm, you're working it, or 
you're the trial lawyer, you have full authority. So if you're a trial counsel, uh, I know some of you will try medical malpractice cases for other firms. Um, if you can speak with a trial counsel, some trial counsel say, I, I just want to try the case. You tell me if it settles or not. If you want me involved, great. If not, you do it. So it depends on that relationship. But um, I, I like to be involved. I certainly wouldn't hand that off to someone who's not uh, knee deep in the case and knee deep in my practice. Okay. Um, Anne is asking, oh, and then I got a minute left. There's a ton of questions and I really appreciate it. I love all these questions. Thank you for this. So I'm going to uh, pick one more and uh, and then the rest, feel free to email me, direct me directly, have a Zoom with me. My information's on the screen behind me. Um, let's see. Um, which one am I going to take? I'm going to, how about this, Andrew? I'll launch the poll while you find your last question. Okay, perfect. The third attendance verification poll, your bonus poll for sticking with us all the way till 2.30 is, what are the details of the Academy's next in-person event on June 22nd? And your answer choices are, there will be live music, food, signature cocktails, and awesome people. It's free for Academy members, like all our member benefits. We will be honoring the New York City Deputy Chief Administrative Judge, Deborah Kaplan, and our incoming president, Lambros Lambrew. And your last option, I want to sponsor this event with an ad in the journal. Choose this option and we will email you the details. All right. Assuming you responded to those polls, we will email you your CLE certificate. Andrew, you got a couple you want to wrap up with? Yeah, I'll wrap up with one. Christopher's asking, um, have I had an expert or can I have an expert repair a computer animated general version of the procedure that the expert considers good practice and then compare that procedure to what happened to demonstrate the deviation from practice? Yes, you totally can. And it's a great idea. And a lot of people do that. There's some great companies and the Academy, we have some as sponsors that what they can do with technology now is really quite amazing. So what you would do is you would have that be, that be demonstrative evidence. This is how the procedure is supposed to happen. And this is what appears to have happened in this case. You can even have animation for that, saying that that's their opinion. And that document, that exhibit is used to support their testimony. Um, and you can definitely get that. Well, I shouldn't say definitely, more likely than not, that, that demonstrative evidence is coming in as long as you exchange it in advance and as long as you have your expert prepared to lay that foundation. At your request, did we have animation prepared to show how this uh, how this surgery takes, how it takes place when done properly? Yes. Um, and did you oversee it? Yes. And were you involved in the design of it? Yes. Do you approve of it? Does it show it? Yes. Will it aid and assist you in your testimony here to the jury uh, today? Yes, it will. And then you offer it. And then they can explain, see here, this is how it's supposed to be done. You're supposed to do a little incision with a type one scalpel. And in this case, instead of doing the little incision as shown up here, look what happened. They went below with a larger one. And when you get down here, this is where you run into chances of risking transecting the aorta. That's the only way they ought to get cut. They were all the way down here with the big one, not up here with the small one. And that's great. That's great. A jury can love sit there and love that. It, they, it'll totally make sense. So demonstrative evidence, exhibits, that's something that my father drilled into me very early on. Again, shout out, Dad, if you're still staying on, that you need to think of a jury in any trial as elementary school kids. You really do. 
and you want to make it as easy and simple for them to understand. And demonstrative evidence, whether it's videos or charts or diagrams, is such a huge part. And in any case, a medical malpractice case specifically, or a serious injury case where you're talking about anatomy or medicine or treatment, I always have a section in my direct examination of my expert called the anatomy lesson, anatomy lesson. And that's where I'm going to have that expert come to my big blow up, step down, give them a pointer and sit back like this and hit the play button. And they stand in front of the jury and they say, this is the body. This is the heart. These are the four parts of chambers of the heart. This is how blood flows. This is this vein. This is what this vein does. And you're going to learn what happened to this vein. So the best way you can present that to a jury so they can see it, feel it, understand it, the better it's going to be for your case. So I'm going to end on that. Um, I will get these Q&As. I'll check them out, but please reach out to me, email me. Um, I have good energy for this stuff, as you can tell, and I'm happy to workshop all this with any of you. I thank you all for participating. I thank you for listening. Uh, please come back for part six next month. We'll wrap this up. Uh, and um, and I'll see you then. Have a good May.